This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings you solace in your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in. And as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens and a temper that never tires and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Ander Munson, author of the Gnome Stories. There was a one review, I think it was in the New York Times, of maybe my first book of nonfiction, Neck Deep and Other Predicaments, which, and I had just sort of a throwaway line about how I'm given to like these pretentious gnomic utterances. And it was a mostly positive review, but it had this like one line. I'm like, and I remember reading it and I was like, what? I didn't really know what that meant. I kind of assumed it was like Gnostic or something like that. We'll be back with Andrew Munson in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Ander Monson, author of eight books of fiction, poetry, and nonfiction. He also edits the magazine Diagram, The New Michigan Press, and Essays Daily. Some of Monson's nonfiction titles include Neck Deep and Other Predicaments and Vanishing Point. His poetry collections are Vacation Land and The Available World, and his fiction includes Other Electricities and the newly released The Gnome Stories. He also directs the MFA program at the University of Arizona. The Gnome Stories feature 11 short stories that explore the surreal and the mundane, make the peculiar seem ordinary, and the ordinary seem unrecognizable. The characters include a man whose girlfriend is cryogenically preserved, a memory miner, and men who detonate bombs, rob homes, or crumble under the weight of their own fantasies. We began the discussion with Andrew Munson talking about the legend of the gnome story. You know, the title of the book wasn't the gnome stories. Um, I don't remember. I had a couple different titles for it that I was working with. 
But I overheard one of my MFA students was just during a break um, in workshop, just telling a story that she had heard. She'd been in a cave for three days with these, these guys doing some kind of like real serious spelunking. And then she was telling the story that one of them had told her, which was that the, you know, they were out in some national park. There's a lot of them in Arizona and they, you know, they, him and his friend had been doing mushrooms or some kind of seriously hallucinogenic drug. And when they woke up in the morning from some crazy adventure they'd had, they, one of them like looked at the other one's like, do you remember the gnome from last night? And it's like, yeah, there was a gnome. And they had, um, they're like, yeah, we, they, they, they brought a gnome. They like, captured a gnome um, in the forest or so they'd thought and brought it back to their campsite and given it some dog food. Um, and so they woke up and they like look over and there's like a little kid um, I don't know how old, maybe like four years old or something like that. Um, and so they, then what it turns out is they'd actually accidentally, while addled out of their minds on like mushrooms or whatever, had rescued a kid who had ab- been abandoned or gotten lost in the woods, but thought it was a gnome, um, but saved the kid. Uh, and then they get, you know, eventually get back to, um, to civilization and, <laughs> You know, they're rewarded or not rewarded. I don't really know where the story goes from that. And that's just, I just remember like thinking like, that's a fucking crazy story. Um, and a kind of a great one, like that they were so, you know, out of their minds that this had, you know, that they didn't even recognize it was like a human being. They thought it was a gnome. Um, and I sort of just like sat with that and like, you know, I, I wouldn't love the story. And it was like people laughing and, wow, this guy's crazy or whatever. They're so high, so stupid. And then, but for some reason, that story just kind of kept echoing with me. Um, and I, I have theories about it, uh, kind of why, but the more I thought about it, the more it kind of, I, I just wanted to tell people the story. And I did, I would tell a whole bunch of other people a story, uh, like the story. And it tracked in certain ways, like with, I guess, with things that were satisfying to me. But then maybe like a month or two after the student, she's like, so she's really embarrassed. She's like, so I know there's that, that gnome story I told you that you're really obsessed with. Cause I told her, I'm just like really obsessed with this gnome story. She's like, yeah, so that's totally an urban legend. Um, and I was like, oh, holy shit, really? And so I looked it up, you know, on Snopes and it is an urban legend. I think it's a story that it's like, commonly told and then retold and spawns that way that's always like someone that you knew or whatever and I I thought at first like that might kind of puncture the like my interest in it or it's like usefulness but it didn't like it it made it almost more fascinating like why is that the story that kind of gets told and retold and as I was working on this the collection of stories like I realized that the gnomes started to show up in different places in the collection most obviously like that story gets told in the reassurances and kind of there's like a sort of discussion about ownership and like meaning of it that kind of happens in that story but then gnomes are also this thing that has become a a kind of joke like you know these sort of dorky garden gnomes um that you know people sort of put in each other's yard or and like, and I, and I, I'm interested in that also. Like, there, what is there about cute about the gnome, and what is there that's kind of like disturbing and magical, and like unharnessable about the gnome? So then it kind of takes up more space in the collection, and started to permeate almost everything. And it became, I also like there to be like a title story where it's not really about. There's not like a gnome story exactly in the book, and I love that idea that there's like a title it's sort of about something that's present but isn't necessarily a story from the book and you said in the beginning when you started telling me about this urban legend that you have some theories about why I think you were talking about why it was told so many times but can you elaborate a little bit about that the theories are more about kind of what interests me about it and one thing that I realized 
which I didn't know at the time, was that there was a one review, I think it was in the New York Times, of maybe my first book of nonfiction, Neck Deep and Other Predicaments, which and it had just sort of a throwaway line about how I'm given to like these pretentious gnomic utterances. And it was a mostly positive review, but it had this like one line. I'm like, and I remember reading it and I was like, what? I didn't really know what that meant. I kind of assumed it was like Gnostic or something like that. And I remember looking it up, but I mean, it basically just means about gnome stuff. And I think like in retrospect that I sort of like part of that kind of entered me in like an interesting way. And I'm like, yeah, okay, gnomes. Like if you don't like that gnomic utterance, then you're not really, you're really not going to enjoy this whole book about gnomes um, and utterances, which is, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's pretentious, but I think I like the idea of kind of like a fuck you to that reviewer 15 years later. I don't even remember who the person was. I have a copy of it somewhere, but I, I like that. I, that sort of that thing. It's kind of like what the Spice Girls did when the Spice Girls sort of, you know, came into the world, like they were mocked by the British press. Oh, there's the posh one. There's the ginger one. And instead of just like sort of rejecting that, they just took that and brought it in. And it's like, okay, now I'm called posh. Now I'm ginger. Now you're sporty. And that idea of like, you know, you take this criticism and instead of, you know, you just absorb it and make it part of like what the thing is. But it, I mean, it was also kind of about, you know, this idea that we're told a story and we want to believe it. And we do, I mean, or we read a story. It's the same kind of thing we enter into when we read like a short story or a novel, a piece of fiction that we want to believe. We want to sort of give ourselves up to that. And the things that we believe in or the things that sort of move us or are kind of like operating our operating system or whatever you want to kind of, they play on our, the computers of our brains or whatever you want to call it, that we experience, like the things that we enter into are also things that interest us or fulfill some need that we're not maybe able to articulate to ourselves. So like there's a lot of these strands that kind of started to click together or at least rub together the more I thought about it. So you mentioned the idea of of listening and this story itself started out as a as a storytelling. It's it's an urban legend. It's it's told orally um, from person to person. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your process or your thoughts about translating a story that's told from person to person onto the page, and if you've thought about that in general. It's a thing that I think I do a lot in my nonfiction. A lot of my nonfiction is me going out into the world and finding stuff that is kind of weird or obscure or crazy or that I just think is beautiful and like bringing it back to the reader and like, oh my God, check this out. Like, do you remember that band Dawkins? You know, I don't like him either, but like, here's this thing about Dawkins. Um, so a lot of the work that I do like in nonfiction, I think has to do with kind of finding stuff and bringing it back um, for the reader. And that's the case in fiction too. Like there's a lot of things, especially in the gnome stories where, you know, I mean, it's fiction, but, you know, I'm working on the story and I, and I have this really weird conversation with my friend Paul and he's like really deep down this hole of how Paul's are inherently sort of failures by comparison with John's. And if your name is Paul, then you're totally hosed. Um, and it's just like this bizarre conversation. Like, of course, your name isn't determinative of like your success in life, but he's got all these thought through theories about it and examples. And when you start to think about it, actually there really are a lot more successful Johns than Paul's um, that come to mind. And I just remember like having this conversation with him. I'm like, this is the craziest conversation. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm, I didn't realize I was going to use it, but then I did because it ends up sort of showing up and where the Paul character in the starvationist story has got this whole theory about Paul's, which is kind of part of his problem. And so, you know, I mean, and I'm pulling it into a story, so I'm not presenting it necessarily as like a true thing. Well, I'm presenting it as true within the context of the kind of spell casting of the story. But I like that idea that, you know, you see a thing and you want to kind of bring it back and incorporate it into something else. And then to get it to do a different kind of work than it does. Um, and it's very pleasurable in part because now, you know, I mean, I taught, you know, 
my friend Paul, I've given him a copy of the book. I'm like, check it out. Like, here's this, this thing that's like a kind of an in-joke for him and me and a few of our friends that I love to have in here because then it also, it kind of becomes a transmission. Like it's, you know, I'm transmitting things to you, the reader, but I'm also transmitting things to people that I sort of know and I'm in, or in my friend group that might get the joke. I'm transmitting something different to Paul, who's the only one who really kind of gets the joke that's in here. And like that idea of taking the, taking the stuff and bringing it to the reader in some way is actually very appealing to me. And the thing I think that happens in almost every one of the stories in this book, there's always like something that I've found or overheard that I want to sort of bring to you and get you to engage with in a way that I hope is delightful and potentially moving. In, I think it was the last story, you have this line that to me reminds me of talking about art in a way in the creative process. This story is called Mm -hmm. Our Song. Basically in this story, you have a narrator who has separated in in emotionally and also physically from his family and had some potentially bad experiences with them and memories and he becomes kind of a navigator of other people's memories and he goes into these memories as if they're a physical place with a robot type type of artificial intelligence and in this case he's hired by an attorney to go into a famous song singer's memories to find out she had some sexual abuse from her father and he's trying to find these memories and sort of prove them. But the story is a lot about memory and how they affect us and how, and he can manipulate memories. He could maybe even add someone else's memories in there. And it also talks about his own memories, but it, it, it also seems a lot about, you know, storytelling and the ways that we evolve who we are over time because memories are just memories of memories. I mean, this is really a story that is maybe like the ultimate of these stories, sort of thoughts about storytelling and kind of like how it works in memory and in our lives. So the line that I was talking about is actually where he's going back into a masturbation memory of the dad. And it seems like they're maybe looking for the origin And you say, she doesn't know this. The contract specifies that she must not know. Some believe that knowing where it comes from ruins it, whatever that is for anyone. So I think that's where I might might have extracted the idea of art. But if you want to talk about, you know, the bigger story and what was inspiring you or how you came up with that idea, please. I'm not actually sure where I had the idea from. Um... Like a lot of these, I kind of know in some sense. I mean, they all come from a space where I kind of get like a line of a voice. Uh, I mean, all these are tend to be like these unreliable narrators. And I mean, the first line of the story is totally the first line that I wrote of it and was the thing that kind of that gave it's like the sourdough starter of the story and everything else kind of comes from that line is like I no longer believe in memory and don't believe in fire and then kind of goes on about like this digital fire that he's sort of experiencing um and I like that idea that uh, that this story is I mean is really trying to get at some of the ways in which like we you know there's that Didion quote like we tell ourselves stories um like in order to live which is the way that a lot of I think memory kind of works but it's also a fiction I mean, all the, when you tell yourself a story, like you're always just telling yourself a story that serves whatever version of yourself you are like right then, which is also how our stories that we tell ourselves change over time. Um, and I, I, but I love the idea of this guy like being like a memory technician who can just drop into someone's memories in order to answer kind of like forensic questions and then, but he, I mean, so he's trying to solve a problem in a sense, but then he's got his own set of problems that he's only partially aware of or kind of on top of, and then is trying to work things out like within this like pop singer's memory. 
And yeah. yeah, it's it's totally like this is like one of the two. I was like, oh yeah, and I ha- it's not dissimilar to the reassurances, which is kind of about the cryonics, kind of like the flip side of like that, like in like in a certain way. But I love that, um, you know. I mean, he's got his he's a technician, but he's got his own problems that he's completely unable to solve, or maybe believes that he is, and ends up in a place that's slightly different than when he came in. Yeah, I mean, one of the things he says at the end uh, was a small line. He says the necessary fiction of the I. Yeah. And, and so I thought about, and that's not E-Y-E, that's I, like who we are and, and how we are always reinventing ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves. And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the, the cryo, you know, aspect to it because you know, what are we really freezing? Because the, the other story you, you talk about, the reassurances, is where a man who gets engaged to a woman by putting a sign on the highway where you do the cleanup, where it says who's hosting the cleanup, he bought that section of highway so he could propose to her and wrote it on the sign. And then she died and her parents froze her and she, he wasn't allowed to see her, so he got a job working in in the factory or, I don't know, the cryo, I don't <laughs> yeah. know what you would call it, business. You know, so he's thinking a lot in that story about, um, you know, who he is, and he's he's watching this grief unfold in front of him because he's he ends up living with her parents. That's where that line, a story isn't yours until after you tell it, and that's where I saw sort of a sort of contagion in some of your storytelling where some of the mm-hmm. things harken back t- to other things. Like, and these are both like the long stories in the book. So they kind of, I think of them as really echoing one another. And then, you know, and I mean, in this case, he really is inside her memory and is doing some work in there. And he's also kind of inside his own memory in certain ways, but in the reassurances, like he, you know, there is no memory. Um, except for like the those who still love the people who have been cryogenically frozen. So you, you know, you're freezing, I guess, like the idea of hope. And to some degree, you're also kind of freezing your own like emotional state. Um, you're kind of like locking that in with the the daughter in this case. The parents are the ones who they believe it's possible that she might be brought back to life. And there is actually um there is actually a cryogenic, uh, a cryogenic facility in Phoenix, which probably shouldn't surprise you, because of course there is. Like, there's one in California, and there's one in uh, there's one like L.A. and there's one in Phoenix. Um, and I also just love. I mean, I love the. I kind of love the optimism of that, which is not totally unfounded. I mean, it's all bullshit, but you know, there's the story kind of like has its own argument about that. But like, you know, a hundred years ago, there's a lot of things that we couldn't have imagined we'd be able to solve or like understand about life. Um, So it's not impossible that these people are not wrong to be freezing the head or the body of the person that, that they're, you know, that they love in hopes they'll come back. But that, but then like, it ends up really being about the kinds of stories that they tell to to those who are actually dead, but you know they kind of record these reassurances for for the, uh, for the dead in hopes that it'll help to like you know make their help to bring them help to keep them alive. But in a way, it does actually keep them alive. Like to the, to the degree that anyone kind of stays alive after death, it's in the memories of others who who know them, um, and in the stories that you tell uh, about those people. Either way, you tell out loud to other people, or you kind of tell yourself in whatever way. So there's like a, I mean, this is more about the survivors, I guess, like in that sense. Um, and then this whole, this whole sort of system of cryogenically preserved people within, down in the bowels of, you know, of Phoenix, Arizona, where it's all sun and all kind of like heat and surface. But there's a lot of really weird shit, like in Phoenix, also, or maybe I just like to believe that uh, as part of my sort of like it makes Phoenix like a more interesting place. One of the things that I I noticed between these two stories you're talking about and some of the others were that your settings or the minds of your characters kind of take place in an interstitial space. You know, I wrote that out. Um, 
for the this the story opportunities for intimacy which is a story where you have a, a character named Shelly who had a lover's feud. She um, leaves, gets drunk, and she ends up kind of teetering on the edge of a bridge with her car where she could she could die and plunge or not. And so the whole story kind of takes place in this interstitial arena where everything is on a hold and, and just kind of supremely what it is in that moment. Yeah, I mean, most of the stories that I write are people that are in process and transition from one thing to another, potentially. Um, like I think of transformation or the desire for transformation as being maybe the primary subject that I write about, at least in fiction, um, that that's like what everyone is kind of in search of in one way or another in the stories, whether they know that or not, to be transformed into something else. Um, and it's something that shows up in, in like another book I've been working on for a while too. And it's part of part of the appeal of things like magic and mystery that you can transform. There is another thing. Um, but it's true. I mean, like almost all of almost all the stories take place in the mind of the narrator in some way, as they're in like a situation that is in some I guess in, to a greater or lesser degree, like um, where something is going to change. We don't know what the thing is that's going to change necessarily. And we don't know like which way it'll go, but we're in those sort of like perch between one thing and another. And I hadn't thought about that, but I think that, I think that's true um, in almost all the stories. And that's maybe most obviously in the like, you know, cryonic sleep is either death or not. Some people believe it's not. Some people believe for sure it is. Um, but I, but I also I, I I like that there's like sort of two narratives at least that sort of happen. Both could be true, and like what your relationship is with the truth kind of changes depending on like what you believe and what you want to believe and kind of how that serves you. So how do you approach your endings when you're? in these kind of transitional spaces in so many of your stories and not that it necessarily is different than like a very clear cut story where maybe someone's searching for their father, but you know, your endings can be very sublime in some of these stories. And I'm just wondering your process of getting to them. And if you felt comfortable, I'd love to read part of the last sentence of that story, but I, I won't, if you don't want to which one of the um opportunities for intimacy sure yeah totally i'm happy to do that there like there's at least one story well there's at least two stories in here where the endings were entirely rewritten um for the book version of the story like the the golem story in particular is that's one that like you know i published a while ago but in a, a quite different version and the end that happens here is a lot darker than the end that was the original end. And part of my sense of like when I was trying to work on the stories was like some of them, like, you know, I got to an end point, but I didn't feel comfortable with where they actually kind of ended. And then that one gets like amped way up um, where I, I even, you know, I don't show my work to a lot of people, but I, a friend of my, my friend Manuel, Who's worked? Who's sort of thoughts I trust? I, that was one. I, I'm like, all right. I need you to like to read the end of the story and tell me if I've like just gone way too far. Um, that I didn't think I had, but it seemed possible. Like I just definitely taken it too far. And and he and he's like he's like, oh yeah, I see what you mean. But no, totally. Like you got it exactly right. You just need to like think about like this one other moment in the story that might kind of like introduce and like echo that in certain ways. So that was one that I mean. I thought it was, I didn't think I was going to have to rewrite the story to kind of get there, but I did. Um, and then same with at least one of the other ones. But let me go to the end of opportunities for intimacy. I think this one has, was also a different end. So you just want me to read the last sentence? Sure. Okay. From here, you can almost see a glow, a starting there, an emanation in its beginning stages. It's all beauty or potential from this far out, everything quiet, so simple, a story problem with an answer. 
maybe Donald slowing and seeing the scene unfold in front of him will feel like he's finally part of something he can change and not just feel insulated from it all in glass or truck or love, in physics or corn or carbonite, not just in his own habits and his loosening flesh, but that he is porous, that but that he is porous to it, to all of it. And even if it's like Homer's comparison of bloody battle reduced by distance to swarming bees, an epic simile, it's his simile, his chrysalis, something for him to emerge from when he's ready. And hopefully he's ready now to see, if not to help, as the stars come out above and the stars rise up around them all, and Hank unfurls and Joseph speaks, and Shelley steps out of the moment of her shock in her teetering car, and they all stand there for a minute in the confluence of lights and agree with me that sometimes, without regard for your predicament or prognosis, a thousand bioluminescent winged beetles are, or should be anyway, just about enough. Do you want to share at all about how you got there? So like that, I mean, that is actually like the ending point of that story is the kind of starting point. Like I totally remember there was a moment when I lived in Iowa, I lived in, um, in Ames when I was getting my master's um, at Iowa State. And there's like parts of Iowa where once you kind of wander out of Ames, you, I would take like an overpass across uh, maybe like, I forget which like which highway it was, I-30 or something like that. Not not an interstate, but like US-30. Um, but you would go across this, this effectively kind of like an interstate. And then you, but you wouldn't go very far. You kind of, I would, I just kind of drive around at night. This may have been before I kind of knew anyone there. And so at night I would just kind of wander around. I would go to Walmart sometimes just to have a conversation with somebody because people would talk to you there while I'm checking out whatever thing I'm doing in the middle of the night because it was a 24 hour Walmart. But I remember what I went to, there was this one part, you cross over the road and then all of a sudden it goes from being in the city to you're just in a cornfield. And I was surrounded all of a sudden by these fireflies, like a, like a shitload of them, like way more than I would have ever kind of imagined. Um, and I just sort of stumbled there and I was like, whoa, like this is something sublime for sure that I'm in the middle of and had no idea. Like, you know, we don't really have those in Michigan. Like we have fields, but like not, not like you have in Iowa. And I had this sort of sublime moment there that I didn't know how to share with anyone. Um, but that's basically the, like the exact ending of that story is like where it's like me or, you know, I mean like the eye of the, of the, of the story. I think that is the only, the only place where we kind of see the first person show up. We kind of like, you know, angle out from the, the third person narration and all of a sudden the narrator's here. Um, and maybe it's me or maybe it's like a narrator or whatever. Um, but like all of a sudden I show up and I'm trying to sort of show you to bring you into this space to say like, you know, I mean, I don't know if this solves anything or if this is like an end, but sometimes it's a spectacular enough moment that I hope it ought to be. And whether it is or not, it's kind of up to the reader, I guess. Is there something that you really want the reader to walk away with? Well, this is one of the few endings of the stories that is also like not super dark. Um, like it, it's a consolation. Uh, I, I see it as being a consolation of, of the story, whereas most of these other stories do not, I think, end in a consoling way. Like they end in a, you just take a turn into a passageway and then there's no way out. You're sort of like stuck there. And I really like that, like that affect as, as a reader and as a writer. I mean, it's notable that this is a moment where you have these car, these people together in this little moment and that togetherness is a kind of answer to what is otherwise like a problem of loneliness that happens in different ways all throughout the book. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, totally. I'm gonna, I, I have some Charles Baxter. I wasn't planning on reading that. The story is called A Late Sunday Afternoon by the Huron. Lincoln and Edie have placed their blue blanket, which Edie received free from a bank for opening a passbook savings account at the south edge of the park, 
a section overgrown with wild cucumber, cow parsnip, Norway spruce, and red oak. They are protected from observers on all sides. Lincoln has taken off his shirt and Evie is applying six to 12 mosquito repellent to his back. His skin smells of paint. All week he works at Bill Lee's AMC Auto Body Shop, pounding, painting, sanding, and stripping. Evie is a clerk in the office. No matter how much Lincoln washes himself off, he still smells of the job. When he kisses Evie, she inhales his work seated into his skin. She doesn't know yet if she minds it. So there's little space breaks between each of these paragraphs because they're all kind of like slightly different point of view. Junior with adult patients is still sitting on the bridge, having by now caught three fish, including a smallmouth bass. The sun, two hours shining in his cap, is now heating up his neck. He looks at the park, yawns, picks up his stringer of fish and decides to bicycle home. A huge piece of tuna sandwich falls into the table. Taffy lunges at it. Look, there's a man, middle-aged, clearing his throat. short sleeve cotton shirt and white cotton pants. Yellow straw hat walking along the river, accompanied by a raccoon. Not on a leash, just walking there. People come up to him, look at the raccoon, ask him questions. He shrugs, smiles, keeps walking. The four guys have brought their portable stereo blaster, a box of cold mushroom and pepperoni pizza and frisbee down close to the water. They've turned on the radio loud to WRIF, self-proclaimed home of rock and roll, and they are opening more beers, smoking weed, laughing and stumbling around. Carl makes a comic noise designed to, designed to sound like a pig at the trough. DF and Bob go off to toss the frisbee, and Carl sneaks down to the river to talk to a girl he's spotted. Boone looks as though he's about to fall asleep. He removes his glasses, separates a slice of cold pizza from the others in the box, and has a bite. So the thing that I really like about this story, and I, again, I don't think it's one of Charles Baxter's even better stories, but like it's a story that has, it's doing a formal thing. It's trying to like each one of these sections is a different kind of dot, right? And like the pointillist painting of the story, but that look, there's a man middle age, like all of a sudden, like it's being, the story's kind of going along in this very third person objective mode. And then all of a sudden we get this like really excitable voice um, the, it draws attention to the voice in a way that we haven't had the, the attention drawn to it yet. And we, and the, and the author, the writer or whoever who's trying to make a story out of this shows up in the story and it kind of, we became gradually aware of that. And I've always loved that like affect to this. Like, I mean, it does a kind of like metafictional step out move, which you can kind of see, I think in a couple of, a couple of my stories too. But I love that there's, you know, like what the thing that we thought we were reading isn't quite the thing that we were reading. We thought we were reading a third person, you know, sort of like omniscient. And now all of a sudden there's actually a narrator here. So like we've kind of zoomed a little back out, like the terms of engagement have changed um, in the story. And I, I, I really, I really like that aspect of it where we get this like very likable narrator sort of shows up. And that's the plot of it. it becomes like him trying to make a story out of a thing that is essentially storyless, which doesn't sound that fun. Like I don't love reading like metafiction, like that kind of bores me as like an idea. But at the same time, I do like being forced to kind of like reconfigure my engagement with the story. And I just love also that he's like doing, this seems like a pretty dumb idea for a story. Like I'm gonna write a pointless painting of a story. Like, that's not a good idea. Like, in workshop, we'd be like, mm, I don't know, maybe we don't don't need to do that. But, like, he's taken it and gone as far as he can go with it. Um, and it has this, like, really overtly playful quality that I find very charming. Plus, it's in Michigan. Like, you know, WRIF is a real thing. And Baxter was also one of the first writers I ever read who wrote about a place that I knew to be a real place. And a place that I was familiar with, like he's the first writer I ever read writing about Michigan, which also kind of like helped to give me a kind of permission um, as a writer to like write about the place that I'm from as opposed to fancy place that's mysterious, like whatever. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I think I'm going to read the end of, well, I don't know if I should read the end of the end of the Gollum story, but I, 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 I will, because I, I just think it's like, 
kind of goes a little batshit, which I appreciate a lot. And that was one that took a lot of work to sort of put together. So I'll read like kind of like the last page or so. Oh, but I'm also going to include there's um, Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 shows up. Um, and that's like a joke basically for my wife. Like Megan, she like her mom's like super into Paul Blart. And we just gave her mom like a lot of shit about how much Paul Blart sucks as like a, a movie. And she she like, loves Paul Blart. So I try to get some Paul Blart into things when I can. I've actually never seen Paul Blart. It's actually probably kind of a nice movie in certain ways. Um, all right. An hour later, unnoticed and unstomped, the thing took its first step off the page, simply lifted itself up perpendicular to the page's surface and left it behind. Now it was out and in the air. From there, it climbed over a Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 DVD and peered over the junk pile toward the electric towers through which ran the lines that connected the development to others. Peered may not be the word. It surely wondered and likely comprehended nothing. It thought nothing. But it did seem as if it took stock of its new dimensionality, and it, start, and it did seem to be looking for something. Then it began to walk. Really, its shuffle dragged in a direct line to Harry and Annette's house. It was still dark. They had by now settled into a detente, each of them grooming their own hurts and thinking about what the other would have to say to be forgiven. Terence nurtured his story, too, in another house surrounded by his memories of the event how it felt, not what it meant. He masturbated to stop the feeling of thinking about it. If he understood more about what had happened, he didn't say. He'd seen some shit, of course. He knew what went on in homes. He didn't call and didn't expect a call. He kept his phone on just in case. Hours passed in this way. Each of them slept some. The thing approached Harry and Annette's house. It had grown again. Thigh high now, it had been partly torn in a bother with a dog, so it, it dragged a dangling claws behind it like a chain. It circled the house, pressed its face and hands to the bay window in the living room. It began to spread. Beginning there, it papered over each window and door while they slept. When Harry and Annette woke in separate beds and saw no light, they still thought at night. In the room they had once hoped to make a nursery, Harry cracked an eye, seeking a little moonlight reassurance. Finding none, he closed his eyes again. Annette, restless in the bedroom, stretched out an arm toward the side where her husband usually slept. Of course, the cat was in his space. She ran her fingers through its fur. She could feel it look at her. It would always look at her. None of them would ever leave the house again. When it had completed its bloody work, Harry and Annette and the history of their marriage and all their angers and ambitions, all their thrills and spells had been reduced and bound to a series of sentences on a page. When you have finished reading it, they will be gone. Do you want to say anything else about that? It took me a while to sort of get, I mean, it's a fairly extreme end. I've been mean, a fairly fucked up story from the get go. You know, we kind of end in darkness and being like sort of papered over. And it's hard not to think of like him looking for like the reassurance of light um, and how that kind of like echoes with the fireflies and the end of opportunities for intimacy, which isn't the thing I, I hadn't really thought about that until kind of reading it now. So, you know, you actually get a little bit of a consolation and the consolation is light, a particular kind of light. Um, this one, there's no consolation. And there's no and there's no light whatsoever. The thing that I one of the things I really liked about this it was hard to do because it just makes such a the story takes such a dramatic turn at the end. Um, but I really like the line where the thing um, it gets it it gets torn in a bother with a dog. It had been partly torn in a bother with a dog, and I really liked that. I mean, I, that was sort of an accident. Bother is not quite the word that I would have chosen to use, but I sort of found my way to that. And I really like that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, this is also like the story just takes a really weird turn, literally, toward the end. And it becomes, originally it was not, it was a realist story. And here it ends in a fairly non-realist fashion that I also like. It feels like it kind of jumps off the page in a very different way at the end than a lot of the other stories do.
And that took me about 10 years to figure out that this was the right end to the story, not the the old, slightly crappier, well, substantially crappier version. Where do you write? Um, mostly, so it depends, like mostly in the place I'm sitting right now, I'm in my office at home um, with the window staring out to the darkness. Uh, more often than not, at night, looking out in the darkness, I can see like little bits of light or little street lights. Occasionally a neighbor sort of does something. So like looking into the dark at night is a big part of it. Um, especially for kind of co composing, uh, revising is a little bit more open-ended. Um, whereas like I've, I used to be really specific about it, but now I'm, I can write at coffee shops are fine as long as I'm like listening to a particular kind of loopy, relatively low vocal music to somehow take me out of the space that I'm in. But I'm not, I'm no longer as picky about space as I used to be when I was younger. I mean, that's what happens when you have a kid in part. Now I'm like, well, I don't have a lot of choices. So like I, I can, I can bring the space with me by listening to the right music almost anywhere that I want to be. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't know how, I don't know how I, I do that like in a certain way. I mean, this is one of the downsides of like also kind of like, you know, teaching writing for a living. That's my job is a lot of, I'm constantly engaging with these questions like from different ways. Um, and so even when I'm like, I go to the library is like one good example. And I, I just discovered this book called Thought Forms by Annie Besant, where it's just like, she, she's like drawing these diagrams of thoughts. She claims to be a kind of like, uh, like a mystic and someone that can see thoughts in the astral plane. And it's from, I don't know, maybe like the 1870s or something like that. But I love that, you know, I mean, like I encounter something totally unlike anything that I would have thought to come to myself. But I found, I just found the book kind of wandering around in the library, which I did a lot for my previous book. Um, so that's par partially it, but I didn't, so getting away, getting away from these spaces when I'm, kind of engaging and bringing stuff at the same time, you know, I mean, when I, when my brain kind of clicks in that way that it does when I found this book and these beautiful images, I'm like, all right, well, that's now doing a writing thing. Um, so that's, that's one way I have of trying to get away when I can, but it's all material is kind of the problem, especially when you do fiction and nonfiction both. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, no one, pretty much. The, I mean, like a, the rare example was the one where I shared that end of that story with my friend Manuel Munoz. Um, and that was, that was one of the few. I have a couple of friends I show things to, a couple of colleagues sometimes, but it doesn't, they usually are pretty far along um, by the time I would show them. Sometimes, and sometimes like it might even be my editors, the first person to take a look at that my editor at Grey Wolf, who's a really good reader for me. I used to have more of those kind of like feedback loops where I would, you know, meet with people and sort of show them stuff and we'd trade work. But I just haven't had kind of the time or the inclination to do that as much in the last five or six years, I suppose. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is hard because it's, you know, I mean, I've, there's a lot of my career as a writer has not really been in the direction that I think people would have assumed. Um, and I think in a lot of ways I've made decisions that have not been conducive to things that like my editors wanted. Like there's a perverse quality, I think, to the way that I've kind of operated in the world. But I, ever since I, you know, I was a kid, like I've never been, you can't tell me things like I sort of have to figure it out myself even if I you know break my face open um I kind of need to learn myself and that's a, a lot of a lot of my experience then kind of like as a writer has been people telling you stuff not listening at least for a while and just kind of pushing on and like well that seems like a bad idea but I'm just going to keep going until I can at least entertain myself and then it turns out, I mean, if you kind of push far enough, 
you can make a lot of bad ideas actually kind of work out pretty well. And that's like one of the real pleasures for me. So for better, or for worse, just not listening to rejecting. I'm not listening to like rejection and feedback that I'm not interested in um, has been, it, it's helped me in certain ways. And it's probably held me back in other ways, but I'm just not a writer who likes to not do what he wants to do. Um, like, I believe I can kind of do anything even when, you know, you could spend eight years working on a book and then <laughs> turns out you actually can't do that thing that you were trying, that you, that you were really trying to do. So sometimes it would be helpful to actually listen to people that tell you things that are true about your life, but that's not really how I roll. And what is your favorite word? Probably ossify. I like ossify a lot. It's a word that I was like really into in grad school. And then I was sort of off of for a while. And I liked, I, I really like the word. I like how it sounds. I don't really like what it means exactly, but I've always been more interested in sound than I am in meaning, perhaps to a fault. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure talking with you. And you've had a very thoughtful read of a lot of these stories. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Ander Monson, author of The Gnome Stories. If you like today's show, check out my interview with writer and teacher Charles Baxter. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as thank yous include an extra 30 minutes collectively of interviews with Sahar Mustafa, Katrin Schumann, and Deb Olin Unferth. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Emily Niemans, Anna Solomon, Lori Gottlieb, Vanessa Hua, and more. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.